0: Today is November 6th, 2015, and my guest is Brian Nozick, professor of psychology at the University of Virginia and co-founder and executive director of the Center for Open Science. Brian, welcome back to Econ Talk.
1: Thanks for having me back.
0: Now, you were a guest about three years ago. Uh, I think uh, you had just started the Reproducibility Project, which was an attempt to reproduce results, uh, in, in particularly uh, in starting in psychology. And the first results for that project have now been published. So I thought it'd be a great time to review that whole enterprise and have you back on to see where, what you found and where you're going in the future. I want to start, that with some background. Uh, what does it mean for a result to be reproducible? Uh, because there are different ways of thinking about it. So what, when you use the term reproducible in, this, um, in these ventures, what do you have in mind?
1: Yeah, it does mean multiple things. Uh, And the typical use of reproducibility uh, is if you already have some data and a finding, uh, can I, using the same data, uh, obtain the same finding? And that could be as simple as taking the analysis code that you prepared uh, and hitting run again uh, in an environment that produces the same result. Or it could mean uh, just taking the data and following the logic of what you did, generate my own way of analyzing the data and getting the same result. The way we use reproducibility is the further extension of that, which is to actually collect new data uh, and see if we can obtain the same result. Uh, So this form of reproducibility is also called replication, but reproducibility is often used as an overarching term for these various uh, ways of defining it. Yeah, and
0: what you really want to know is, did the... Typically in psychology, for example, you're looking at an experimental result and you want to know if, if you run the experiment on a different group of people but follow the same protocol, that is, ask the same questions or put the subjects through the same experiences, whether the result is uh, the same. So, so to me – so let me make sure I understand this because I'm a little confused. W- replicate, what, what do you mean by Replicate.
1: So in this context, replicate is the, act of, is the act of trying to create the same conditions uh, that are necessary to observe that particular finding. Uh, and that's usually following the protocol very closely. Uh, but it might require some adaptations to that protocol that are perceived to be irrelevant to the finding, right? So if we did the original study in the United States and we want to do a replication in Germany, we might need to translate the materials uh to for the participants to be able to read it. Uh of so course not perfectly redundant and no study is perfectly redundant with the original. There's always lots of changes. But the key is that those changes are deemed to be understood to be irrelevant for what you're actually investigating. So why
0: would you, I'm going to say this in a negative way on purpose. Um, why would you waste your time replicating all these results? We've already found them. W- what are yeah. some of the issues? We talked about this three years ago, but I want to review them. Yeah. Why would you be suspicious or concerned about some of the findings in the finest peer-reviewed journals in your field or mine?
1: Well, well the, the general answer is that reproducibility is central to science. Right. So a, a scientific claim doesn't gain credibility because of an authority saying, this is true, you have to believe it, uh, or because that person has a good reputation, scientific claims gain credibility by the ability for them to be independently reproduced. Someone else can follow the same procedure and find the same result. So the credibility is within the evidence itself, not within the generator. of uh, So that is a core principle of how scientific claims become credible, it means that having Having reproducible research is a core value of what science does, how it operates, how we succeed uh, in developing knowledge inside. So then, well, yeah, great, that's a value. Why do we need to then actually redo experiments that have been shown uh, in the literature? And the answer is is because we don't know the rate of reproducibility of the published literature. We can assume that it's high, uh, but we don't know that it's high. And there's a lot of indicators uh, prior to this project being started uh, that suggested that there were challenges to reproducibility, reasons to expect that it might be lower than we anticipate. And a lot of those boil down to the incentives that drive individual researchers' behavior. My success as a practicing researcher is contingent on me publishing and be publishing as often as possible and in the most prestigious outlets possible. And what gets published uh, isn't necessarily the, uh, there there are certain things that are more likely to get published than others. I'm more likely to get published if I get beautiful, clean, positive, innovative results. Because those are the best kind of results. Uh, But not everything that we do in our research looks like that. In fact, most of it doesn't. And so my incentives are to try to make the research as beautiful and publishable as possible, not necessarily to make it as accurate as possible.
0: Well, that's what Photoshop is for. Oh, no, that's a different that's a different feel. But so there's sort of two problems here. One is fraud, which is that there is an incentive, unfortunately, to literally cheat. But that's not the only problem. Right.
1: Right. The fraud is is certainly a problem. And uh, and. To, to go that distance to actually deliberately uh, deceive uh, is a big deal. Uh, but that is probably a very small part of the challenges for reproducibility uh, because most scientists aren't willing to go that far, even though the incentives are strong. Uh, but rather, most researchers are in it, to learn something. We're trying to get to the truth. We're trying, you know, why why do all of this work uh, if we weren't motivated by discovery and trying to find new knowledge and trying to apply that knowledge to solve human problems? So there's a lot of genuine effort uh, that researchers are doing to try to discover true things, but we're also trying to survive and thrive as practicing researchers. Uh, and because of that, we have a conflict of interest. Right? The findings that I obtain. Are have impact for my career outcomes. And so I will find reasons, not necessarily intentionally, uh, to drop studies, to drop analyses, to analyze things multiple ways. I have flexibility in what I, ends up in the papers that I try to get published. And if that isn't a complete representation of how I got to those findings, then what's in the published literature could be more beautiful uh, than what reality is.
0: So in the paper you wrote a while back that we talked about three years ago, uh, there are two things I just want to mention again because they're so uh, important. One is the line, uh, published and true are not synonyms, yeah. which is hard to for people to, to accept. I think uh, journalists certainly have an incentive to ignore that truth. And so they publish lots of things that are published results in peer-reviewed journals because they're really interesting and people want to read about them true or not it's a different question, but just uh, quickly retell the uh, research finding you had about shades of gray that was in that original paper.
1: Yeah, so Matt Motel were interested in a, uh, a, a very fascinating area of research in, in psychology right now, which is how um, physical states and mental states may be linked uh, in, in robust ways, in, in unexpected ways. And so we uh, had some data where people had to judge gray s- swatches uh, and rate how, how light or dark they were, match them with other gray swatches. Uh, and people do this task, and it's, it's just a perception task, how light or dark is this? Uh, and when we analyzed the data, we separated the liberals and conservatives from the moderates. Uh, and what we observed is that moderates were better At perceiving shades of gray accurately than people that were on the far left or far right.
0: Physical shades of gray. Physical
1: shades of gray. Right. So it sort of really plays into that You know, you're a black and white thinker. You just so beautiful. It is wonderful. By the way, Brian,
0: I tell the story all the time to people, and and then when I tell them that result, they always go, "Yeah, wow, that's yeah, that's cool. That makes sense." So go ahead, but then what happened?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So hey, we we could have just stopped there and sent it in for publication uh, because it is an amazing result. It's beautiful, it's innovative. Uh, it would have been highly publishable. Uh, but we said, you know what? Let's let's do a sanity check here because this is kind of amazing. Let's go ahead and do it again. We had an easy mechanism for data collection, so we didn't have any barriers to running the study again. Uh, and so we did it again with a very large sample and it would. Disappeared. It didn't show up the second. And then we said, oh my God, why did we do that second (laughs) study? (laughs) This was the biggest mistake. Like we had the finding. Now it's gone. Uh, And so we didn't end up publishing the paper. We ended up publishing a story about this, uh, that that result was exciting. Uh, But the first time we found it was more exploratory. We we found a data set that was relevant. We looked at it a few different ways and we found this great result. The follow-up, was a confirmatory test, right? We put some uh, constraints on ourselves because we had a finding. We had a method that we used to find it. Uh, We had a way in which we analyzed the data to observe it. And now that we had those things, now we had constraints. And then we did the study again in the exact same way, and it went away.
0: Did you do it a third time?
1: We have not done it a third time, although Matt is talking about it. Were attempted. So both maybe. of us sort of still feel like there's potential here. Well, maybe the that,
0: second study was the unrepresentative one. Or is it the case that once, it's un, once it doesn't get confirmed, it's not a reliable finding, period?
1: No, your, your first response is right, which is no one study is definitive. Right, That first study was a good, interesting initial effect. The second study provides some skepticism. Both of them contribute to an understanding of, oh, oh, okay, well, maybe we're not sure here. And a third study would be useful. Uh, We didn't yet follow up on this, but I do think it is still a a possible result. Uh, But it certainly isn't a publishable result yet. Given the current incentive structures in science, uh, we need to have clear evidence. Uh, And so what would we do if we sent both of these studies uh, to a journal uh, the reviewers will look at it and say, well, we don't know what to believe here, uh, and so how can we possibly publish this? Whereas if we had just sent the first one, uh, it would have been much more likely uh, to be accepted uh, if they didn't themselves demand a replication, which is very rare, uh, at least historically. Uh, three years ago, it was extremely rare. Uh, now it's more common to ask for a replication of such
0: So just to add a little twist to your study, which I, I suspect you did not do, you might have or maybe you did do it, you might have at the same time that you asked people to identify shades of gray and, and check their political views, you could have also checked their eyesight. You yeah. could have seen, done, given them an eye test, a physical eye test, and graded their uh, eye's ability to see. And perhaps it might have turned out that some of the people with the less high quality eyesight maybe ruined your data in that second test so you guys said, you know, we're gonna let's let's exclude this group yeah. whose I say wasn't quite so good, and then it confirms the finding. And I think the 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 challenge for in economics, certainly, and I suspect it's also true in psychology, is the the temptation to remove outliers, to uh, censor the data, meaning to yeah. throw out high or low variables because obviously they're not representative. Uh or certain types of people in the sample i 've used I think I've mentioned this before on econ talk, but the study uh, that i uh, that I once read uh, that got front page coverage was on the uh, relationship between uh, drinking alcohol and various forms of cancer for women and it just turned out that they had excluded uh, women who didn 't drink from the sample now it turned out that women who didn't drink actually had higher rates of cancer than the women who drank a little bit, uh, that kind of ruined their story. Uh, but they justified removing the women who didn't drink because, well, maybe they just started not drinking. But of course that would be true of all of the sample. Um, so that's a very unattractive reason to me for excluding them. But the point is, is that usually in many, many situations, we have lots of choices that take place in the kitchen And if you're not in the kitchen with me, you don't know what I've done. And that's why your work, this project that you're doing is, I think, so incredibly uh, important.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's a great example. And it really is the case that we have enormous opportunity, right? There is substantial flexibility in how we analyze the data, right? So eyesight would have been a great one. We could have then thought, well, hang on a second. Uh, We had a lot of young people in this maybe their political views aren't really yet well Bad formed. That's fully formed. Or let's look at their actual political knowledge, right? So it's really those that really understand these issues that, that this would happen, right? So we could have analyzed the second study to death and maybe found some moderating influences, right? Oh, it shows up here and not here. And then our, our finding is preserved. But of course, the problem is, is that we've now looked at the data and the data itself has shaped how we analyze that data. So we're both simultaneously generating and testing the hypothesis with the same data. And that's a no-no, right? We can't do that. You cannot generate and test hypotheses with the same data confidently. And yet, So the, the key uh, is we, we should do that, right? We should dig into that data in the second study because we have, a, uh, we have an idea. We have a hypothesis. So we do do all that digging. If we find something like that, then we can't stop there. We have to test that with new data. And that's the cycle of science, right, is no study is definitive. We are going to explore and learn from our data, and then we need to follow it up with real hypothesis tests where we put the constraints on ourselves.
0: And Ed Lemer has pointed out in his famous paper, let's take the con out of econometrics and and talked about on this program, that when you um, dig in the data like that, when you have a hypothesis and you test it, there's a standard set of – of statistical tests to test for significance. And if, however, you start going back and forth between the data and your hypotheses, uh, trying different formulations, excluding certain sample points, uh, adding variables, taking some out, you've really left, not really, you have left the field of classical statistical testing and the tests don't apply anymore. But we pretend Uh, that they do. Right,
1: right. Yeah, exploratory analysis is very important, uh but it is also very different in what you can conclude from confirmatory tests.
0: Okay, so let's go on to the um your project, the reproduci- reproducibility project in psychology. Um what was the plan? What did you uh what was the idea and, and how did it, it come to be? So, uh I guess it's about 4 years ago now.
1: Uh as we thought there's lots of discussion about reproducibility. We've thought about this for years, but we really have no direct empirical evidence about the rate of reproducibility in any field, uh, let alone psychology or my home discipline. Uh, so how would we get some kind of estimate uh, for whether there is a ch- problem uh, in reproducing published results? And the most plausible reason is you take a random sample uh, or the, the ideal way uh, is to take a random sample of the published literature, uh, run replications, and see how many replicate. Uh, and that seemed like, well, geez, that's, that's going to be hard to do. Yeah, that's a ludicrous uh,
0: idea. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants to do is, it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, uh, it is ridiculously There's dumb. no
0: money in it. There's no fame in it. There's no glory. <laughs> Uh, uh, turns out all of those ideas
1: are wrong uh, because, because here I am talking to you. Uh, oh, but, the, glory. Uh, the glory. The glory, exactly. Uh, but, the, but we thought okay, well, we can't do the perfect ideal to run a huge sample, but can we get close? What would it take to get close? No one, we, we can't devote all of the resources in our own lab to do this, uh, but there are a lot of people that are interested in this issue, and maybe. Uh, we could get a group of people together to run 10, 15, 20, gosh, maybe 30 replications. Uh, and that would at least give us something, right? Somewhere to start, uh, because we just need something to ground this discussion. There's lots uh, of mudslinging. There's lots of hoo-hahing. There's lots of arms waving about the reproducibility challenges or not challenges. We need some to ground that in some evidence. Uh, and so we just started to say, let's let's each contribute a little bit. Let's crowdsource this and have a common protocol for how we're going to select studies, uh, what uh, how we're going to develop the, the replications themselves, how we're going to conduct that, how we're going to interact with the original authors. Uh, and then and we'll write a, a paper with the aggregate results. And so no one person or team will have to spend too much of their resources on doing a replication. Uh, but collectively, we'll get something interesting out of it. And so we started just by creating a web page. Uh, and this was at the same time that we built the Open Science Framework, which is our uh, scholarly commons, a free open infrastructure for people to manage their research. And so it became the infrastructure for supporting the reproducibility project. Uh, and then we sent out an email and said, anybody want to join us? Uh, and very quickly, it was a team of 50 people. We said, oh my gosh, this actually might work. Uh, and then after a few months, there was a team of 100. And after a few more months, there was a team of 150. And so our aspirations uh, of how much we could actually get done uh, sort of grew in response to the fact that there was a real community of people in the field that were hungry to try to get some credit, some evidence, some understanding uh, of whether this is a problem and to what extent it is and what we might do about
0: it. Now, were you worried that some of them were too hungry? Um, So, you know, it's kind of fun to tear down a famous study that your mentor's enemy (laughs) did that ruined your mentor's research, you know. So how'd you deal with that?
1: And certainly in replication, that has been the uh, perception of why one would ever do a replication is as a hostile act, right? Replication is a threat, not a compliment in the present culture of science. Uh, Because why would you question my work uh, is the immediate reaction rather than what we would idealize as the response to replication, which is, oh, my import, finding is important enough that someone else uh, wants to independently confirm it, right? That should be uh, how it is, but it isn't how it is. Uh, so there is that challenge, and there, there certainly is variation in people's uh, priors of what they think the problem is and whether they think particular effects will replicate or not. So the way we tried to manage that uh, in this process was to provide constraint on us as replication teams. And there are a variety of constraints, uh, but a few of them are that we defined a sampling frame of a particular set of studies that were eligible for replication. Uh, And then we slowly made studies available from that set to minimize selection bias uh, and to maximize just trying to have enough flexibility so that we can ma- match studies with teams that have the relevant expertise, experience, resources. Uh, so what that, what, what part of what that tried to do is minimize the likelihood that individual team members would say, oh, there is this particular study I don't like. Rather, they're just looking at these particular studies from this particular year, from this particular journal, and they don't have any part- strong stake in any of them. Uh, but they're just looking at them for what ones they can do effectively. So you ended
0: up... Go ahead, sorry.
1: Oh, so yeah, that was part of the, the constraint that we had to ourselves. A second uh, element of the constraint on the replication teams was we required uh, interaction with the original authors to really do as the best job that we can to have a good-faith uh, replication. Uh, so uh, trying to obtain the original materials from the original authors, getting their critique of the design before it went... Uh, into production And then documenting, uh, if they continue to have concerns, documenting those and surfacing them uh, so that a reader can evaluate themselves. Was this a fair replication or not? Do I believe this one or not? Uh, and then the final part was just transparency of the entire process. So everything about the project, uh, all of the materials, all of the data, all of the designs, the original protocol, all of that is available on the Open Science Framework uh, so that others can dig into it and decide what they think. And then that includes commentaries from the original authors about the results, uh, and those are attached right with uh, the the results if the original authors uh, chose to to write a commentary.
0: You know, what's fantastic about this is that uh, there was a study, uh, replication attempt, outside of your project. It was a very, very uh, high-profile project, uh, high-profile study that had shown that when hearing words related to the elderly or being a senior or being old people had left an experiment more slowly than when they didn't get uh stimulated by those words And when i saw that result i was kind of skeptical about it and i guess somebody else was and they tried to replicate that finding and they couldn't replicate it and i remember the hostility that the original author gave back to the uh the replicators because you know the the author said you didn't do it right. You didn't. <clears throat> your tone of voice must have been wrong. You didn't pronounce "senior" correctly. Yeah, there was. There, of course, there are always things you can point out uh, that might have made it plausible that the replication would fail, even though the result was true. Yeah. And what's nice about what you've tried to do is that you've tried to make that process uh, less of a debate and more of a um, a, a catalog of what actually went on. So I think that's phenomenal. Uh, So let's talk about the universe. So you ended up, uh, of studies, you ended up with uh, how how did you, not how did you, but what was the universe you ended up choosing for replication?
1: So we used uh, 2008 uh, as the year of publication and then we selected three journals from that year, Psychological Science, uh, JPSP, Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, and JEPLMC, Journal of Experimental Psychology: Learning, Memory, and Cognition, and then we started with the first article that was uh, the first yeah first article that was published in the first issue of the 2008 year, uh, and we just moved forward uh, from that initial article, uh, and then there were a lot of studies in the sample uh, as it accumulated that we couldn't feasibly do. This was a volunteerism project. This, you know, was built on uh, minimal resources at first. We did get a grant later, uh, but we we did this just with people who were willing to put in some time. And so there were studies that were in this set that were, you know, longitudinal studies of three thousand Dutch, uh, and uh, they measured them over five years. We we could not uh, put the resources in to do a replication of that, uh, and so the. There is a selection bias in the sense that the studies that we were able to do from this frame uh, are a subset of the total studies that we could have done, uh, and there are reasons, uh, most of them being feasibility constraints for ones that were included that versus ones that were not.
0: And you ended up with a hundred studies, correct? A hundred completed studies.
1: The report, yes, but uh, we, more were claimed, uh, but they, some of them didn't get finished.
0: So, if I have just a technical question, if I have a study uh, that had, you know, five findings, is that one replication or was it five? How'd you decide what to replicate yes. within a study within a published article?
1: Yeah, so that's the, the one level now down deeper. Is that once we defi- identify the article, well, what's to be replicated? Some of these articles had six independent mm-hmm. studies. And within each of those six studies might have had 10 or 12 findings uh, that they report and talk about. So the selection process we had for that, just to have, some, again, some constraint for us so that we could focus on a particular thing uh, with, with the implications for bounding our bounding inference, uh, is that we, by default, selected the last study. Uh, so that we wouldn't have selection bias of looking at all of the studies and trying to pick which one we thought would be most or least, uh, whatever, likely uh, to replicate. Uh, so start with the last one, and then and what do you, if what it's do you not mean? feasible,
0: what do you mean the last one?
1: So the, the, a paper will have studies presented in some order, uh, and it, you know, whatever the order is that the researchers decided to report those. Uh, and so just reading through the paper, this is number one, that's number two, that's number three. Okay. We're going to start with number three, uh, and, uh, identify the key finding from that study. Uh, and so it's trying to narrow it down to a single, uh, test that occurred in that study. If it turned out that the, it was infeasible to replicate the third study, but the second study was feasible to replicate, then the, the team could move and do the second study. Sometimes even the original authors recommend it. But,
0: but by study, a... you don't mean paper;
1: you mean that's right. So it's within a paper okay. there might be many studies. Correct. Yeah. So Got in you. psychology, this is common where uh, it's a very simple paradigm, and so they run five different experiments all on the sort of a similar kind of question, uh, and then write one paper about it.
0: Okay. So let's. Um, so you ended up with uh, in 2008 there were an enormous number of articles written in all three of these journals, Um, but you ended up with 100. Is that just out of, uh, because it's a nice round number, why'd you get to 100?
1: So we got to 100 because we really, really wanted to get to 100. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's the actual answer. It's like Thomas Jefferson.
0: Uh, Thomas Jefferson died on July 4th, 1826. He he wanted to get there.
1: Right, yeah. And so the, uh, the original aspiration was 30, and then we thought once there's a lot of people involved, we thought maybe we can get to 50. And then once we got a grant from the Laura and John Arnold Foundation to help support the project, we aimed for 100. Uh, and you know, the more is better uh, with data, right? We have more of these replications, then we can have uh, more confidence in our inferences, with less and more precision in our estimates, uh, and so hundred has appeal just in its roundness, uh, but it also was the target that we committed to f- to our funders and to the team to say how how much can we actually get done? And it was an enormous effort to get there. Mallory Kidwell and Johanna Cahoon, the two project coordinators, uh, were just pushing and pushing and pushing to get us uh, to that number. So they what just were their names enormous- again, Johanna Cahoon and. Hillary Kidwell uh, were the coordinators, and so we have you know charts on the wall in our office about progress on this. We have you know markers of which studies are we going to be able to get done, which teams are making progress, where are they, uh, and we're just really pushing uh, to get to that to get to that number.
0: So to get to 100, did you go past 2008? You did, right? No, we didn't go past you 2008. In 2008.
1: Uh, yeah, so the there was 488, I think, total possible articles we could s- selected from. Uh, I think it was 165 or so of those became eligible, so they were in the frame that could be selected from. Uh, And then of those, 113 were actually replications got started, uh, and 100 of those got finished.
0: And you do realize, of course, that there was a financial crisis in 2008, so that kind of really throws out (laughs) the whole – and it's also the year after the Red Sox won the World Series for the second time. In this millennium there's uh, a lot of problems, but two thousand and eight yeah, we'll stick with right. it um, that you just i assume you picked a, a year that was recent but not too recent
1: yeah, we wanted something you know so all of these are sort of uh, decision factors right because so, the ideal is a completely random sample, uh, but the, a completely random sample of what where does psychology end and other disciplines begin uh, so that would have been very, too hard to define. Uh, and then there's also a lot of journals that are very low impact. And so we thought if we do a completely random sample, then, uh, we'd get a lot of studies where people would say, oh, but we don't take those studies very seriously. It's really the studies and the important outlets. So we constrained it, journals and then we constrained to 2008 because we, uh, this started in 2011. Uh, but we really wanted, uh, to have, uh, Recent enough where we could get the original materials, right? Failing to reproduce because we can't get the materials is uh, one reason that is less interesting than potential other reasons. Uh, But at the time, we wanted it far enough back where we could get estimates of how much impact uh, those were having. So we didn't pick the year that we started as the year because we thought, oh, we'll finish this in six to nine months. And so we don't need – we need some time So, Of course, it took three and a half years, not six
0: months. (laughs) So uh, I'm going to read the the um, abstract from the paper that you and the rest of the team published in Science uh, recently, and then we're going to talk about the findings. So I'll read the summary, the abstract first. <clears throat> Reproducibility is a defining feature of science, but the extent to which it characterizes current research is unknown. We conducted replications of 100 experimental and correlational studies published in three psychology journals using high powered designs and original materials when available. Replication effects were half the magnitude of original effects, representing a substantial decline. 97% of original studies had significant results, 36% of replications had significant results. 47% 47% of original effect sizes were in the 95% confidence interval, the replication effect size. 39% of effects were subjectively rated to have replicated the original result. And if no bias in original results is assumed, combining an original and replication results left 68% with significant effects. Correlational tests suggest that replication success was better predicted by the strength of original evidence than by characteristics of the original and replication teams end of quote so i want to talk about three of these findings the first is that uh, the one that got the most press uh 39% of effects were subjectively rated to have replicated the original result and that that number 39% got bandied around a lot in the news accounts of your study uh talk about what it means by, first of all, how did you measure success? How did you, uh, measure it replicated the original result and why is the word subjectively in there?
1: Yeah. So that abstract summarizes five different ways of characterizing reproducibility. Uh, and this is important because there is not, a, you know, it's, what does it mean to have replicated the original result? Uh, it seems like an easy question, but it, when you start to unpack it, it's a very hard question to answer. And so we used a multi-methods, right? We used five different ways to sort of look at what the relationship between the replication and the original results were. Uh, and one of those was the, generated the number 39%. And so the subjective ratings were the result of the re- replication team finishing the study, doing the analysis, looking at the results, and then deciding, when I look at the and I look at the original result, are these, is the replication success or not? And they gave a yes, no answer. Uh, and so it was their subjective judgment of that. That one was very highly correlated with another one of the uh, criteria, which is, was it a significant result? Did they obtain a p-value of less than 0.05 in the replication? So like stop, they
0: did? stop there and explain sure. what a p-value of, uh, of 0.05, why, why that matters.
1: Yeah, so p values are the standard in uh, most uh, areas of science that use inference testing for deciding about the credibility of a particular piece of evidence. And what a p value means is uh, assuming the hypothesis is true, uh, how likely is it that we would observe this pattern of data? Observing the null hypothesis, I should say, right? That there is no relationship. To observe, uh, how likely is it that we would observe these data? Uh, and when these data are extreme, they're quite different than what you would assume if there was no relationship, then you get a low p value. And so lower p values are better in the sense that they're saying these data are unlikely to have occurred with no relationship. And so then people want to say, well, so then that means that maybe the, uh, my alternative hypothesis that I think there is a relationship is true. Uh, And so P less than 0.05 is the de facto criterion in most scientific research uh, for uh, whether the effect is considered significant and that you can claim that there is evidence uh, for your effect.
0: And it's important to point out that the word significant here uh, in statistics is not the same as it's used in everyday language. In everyday language, significant means important, uh, effect has a big effect, matters matters. It matters, right. but in in statistics, it just means that it's unlikely to be true uh, by chance. Which it still could be a significant finding statistically, but insignificant. So uh, you know, a, a twenty percent increase in some variable could have a significant impact on another variable, but the change could be so small that it's not worth worrying about, or it's not something that you'd normally care about. But it could be statistically significant. So just important for listeners to keep that in mind who aren't uh, used to these kind of words.
1: Yeah, and this came up in a big news story very recently about the, the can't uh, you know, does bacon cause cancer? And, you know, all of us bacon lovers uh, were very concerned about this particular uh, result being reported in the, in the, in the news uh, about bacon being linked to cancer. Uh, and also there was some discussion about whether it was as strong as or stronger than smoking. Oh my gosh, how could that be? Uh, well, it turns out it was a statistically significant result. It was li- unlikely to have occurred by chance, uh, but the effect size was not very small, or it was not very large. And so this, that is the this comparison, as you're talking about, the importance, how much it predicts can be very small, even if it's measured highly reliably.
0: So we're putting that to the side because we're going to stick with statistical significance right now. But so going back, so let's go back to the 39% number. I interrupted you to clarify p value. So, people made an assessment um, of what?
1: Of whether they thought the replication uh, was consistent, the finding in the replication was consistent with the original. So, was it was successful in reproducing that original result. And
0: they just gave a yes no answer. And, and, uh, but how did they make that call?
1: So, they, just by looking at the evidence and the correlational data suggests that most. Mostly they used the p-value to make that assessment uh, and might have been influenced to some degree by what they observed as the effects size. how strong a result was the original, how strong a result was the location.
0: So the the average finding, if I have this, let me get back to the uh, summary. Right. So the average finding was half the size of the original. Yeah. So that means that some of them were less than half, I assume. Um, yeah, quite a few. Quite a few, quite a bit less than half. They could still be statistically significant, though. So, so who made the call about whether that was a replication or not? So let's say you find some effect, it's claimed, you, re- you try to reproduce it. It's only a third as large, but it's still statistically significant. Is that a confirmation or, a fail- or is that a failure to reproduce?
1: Well, because we had five criteria, it's both. Uh, and because in some of those criteria, like the 36%, it would be count the 36% of statistically significant results, it would count as a success. In the effect size comparison, it would look like much less of a success. Although that's sort of continuous; it's not a discrete yes or no. It's a comparison of the effect size. And in the subjective assessment, it's whatever the replication team looking at it says. Well, yeah, it's smaller, but they're showing effect. We're showing the effect that they found. It's smaller, but it's still the same
0: effect. So we say it's success. So let me restate again one line two lines from the summer from the abstract. Ninety seven percent of original studies had significant results, uh which is impressive for those other three that still got published. Uh but three uh, percent, but ninety seven percent had significant results, thirty six percent of the replications had significant results. So that's about thirty-nine uh, percent, I assume doing the math in my head. So that's yeah the the failure to find a significant result is overwhelmingly going to be the measure of whether it was a success or whether it was a re, uh, successful reproduced result.
1: Yeah, those two criteria were the most strongly related to each other of the five different criteria we used to evaluate replication success.
0: So I want to step so is 30 Nine percent—a high number or a low number? You know, it's interesting. Some would say that's appalling. Others would say, "Wow, thirty-nine percent—good for you, Uh, good for psychology." It is—it is something of a wake-up call. I'm—I'm curious what kind of reaction you're getting, not from the authors, we'll talk about them in a minute, but from the field in general. When 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 you've published this recent overview that summarizes the findings by saying, uh, you know, here's the way I would say it. About 60% of the studies failed to replicate, and about 40% seemed to be held up, at least under this, this one test. Uh, what's the reaction of most people in psychology? Do they go, yeah, I always knew my field was, a, was a, a fraud? Or did they say, wow, there's a lot more science here than I thought? Is the glass half empty or half full?
1: Yeah. Uh, my experience with the reaction to this paper so far has been that it, it, it operates as a Rorschach. Uh, so you get a lot of information about people's prior beliefs uh, by how they evaluate uh, this, the results of this paper. Uh, so people that have thought that there are challenges and problems look at this and say, see, uh, and, then, and now we need to do all of these changes. And we now need to fix this. And now we need to do that. Uh, people who have not thought that there was a problem, thought that the, this whole discussion has been overblown, say, see, replicators are incompetent. <laughs> 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 you know, so, uh, and, and maybe it's somewhere in between. We don't know yet. Uh, so, but it is, a, uh, it is a paper that's serving the purpose of having done the research in the first place, which is to ground these debates, these priors, these different beliefs about the challenges into something where we can actually dig in and uh, start to unpack it. So, what's really great that's already happening is that all of these data are open, all of the methodology is open. And there are lots of people with very different prior beliefs about uh, whether there is a problem or not uh, that are digging into it, critiquing it, finding new things, finding things that suggest the problem is worse, finding things that suggest the problem isn't so bad based on these data. But it is a data-driven discussion. Now, they're they're hypothesis-generating, right? This is exploratory at this point, uh, looking at these data. But nonetheless, it's using data rather than just whatever people think based on their anecdotal experience.
0: So I got interested in this decline issue um, from an article that um, Jonah Jonah Lear published in The New Yorker. He's since fallen on – has fallen on hard times. But it was an article about Jonathan Schooner, the uh, psychologist who had found this provocative effect, uh, counterintuitive effect, and then went back somewhat akin to your uh, Shades of Grey study – and had uh, and by the way, that's what you would have called your paper if it had been published. Uh, Fifty yes. Shades of Gray. It's a shame. Uh, <laughs> who knows? You maybe you resurrect it. But anyway, Jonathan Schooner. Um, Schooler, yep. Schooler. Excuse me, Jonathan Schooler uh, found that when he went back to retest a result of his, that it got smaller. I think by about half. Then he went and retested again a few years later. It got smaller again. Yeah. And this was came to be known as the decline effect. Do you have any thoughts on that? And especially given that you've found it now in this paper, why should we observe a decline? Uh, it's hard to imagine that somehow over the last X years, people aren't as good at Y or Z, whatever is being tested, that the effect is somehow diminished by uh, sunspots or whatever. It just, it's, it does, it's alarming.
1: Yeah. So the, I'll, We don't know what the answer is, but the most available explanation, meaning the one that just sort of drops right out of uh, this whole debate about reproducibility, is that the decline effect is a function of the publication bias. Uh, This sieve of what gets through from actual research being done to research being published uh, requires statistical significance, right, getting that p-value below 0.05, but is also done in a context where... Research is pervasively underpowered. We don't collect enough data for testing the questions and the effect magnitudes that we can, we can expect in the kinds of research that we do. This is a pervasive problem that's been discussed since the 1960s. Uh, but the consequence of those two things happening simultaneously, low-powered research and requirement for statistical significance, means that the only way you can get statistical significance is to take advantage of chance, Uh, and happen to observe larger than reality of larger than what are real effects. That just because I run five studies, I am investigating a true effect. One of those will happen to be larger than it really is and obtain that statistical significance. And that's the one that gets published. So if that is occurring at a pervasive scale, then the results of the reproducibility project are exactly what you would expect as a consequence, which is most research is actually when you just do it and report it, regardless of whether it's significant or not, is going to estimate smaller effects than those few that get through the publication. Now, I'll say that that's not necessarily the only explanation, uh, because there's other ways that we could uh, understand the decline effect, and there's lots of reasonable hypotheses, and many of them can be contributed. For example, we could have observed smaller effects in the replications because the replications were not tuned to the particulars of the sample and setting uh, in which they were conducted, like the original research was. right. So it's possible that those original authors designed their study in such a way that it would obtain the largest possible effect they could uh, in that original setting. And then when the replication team did it in a new setting, they didn't change it enough or tune it enough so that you would get that strong of an effect because there's other factors that were influencing the result.
0: Uh, t- so t- tuned t- in ways that aren't observable or that aren't Listed in the protocol,
1: yeah, or that you wouldn't know that you needed to change that—that uh, are that subtleties, right? What kind of language you use to communicate to those kinds of participants? Facial
0: expressions. Yeah. My my means, favorite example. of This is that I may have mentioned this before on the program, but it's so good I could I should use it at least once a year. Which is the uh, studies that showed that um, that people have ESP—they have extrasensory perception. There was a test done with with cards. So I'd put a card down on the table, and I'd say, guess what suit this is? Uh, And and people would guess. And then uh, some people were shown to have a much higher than 25% ability to identify the suit. But it turned out that what had happened was, in doing the experiment, uh, the people who had done the experiment would do a a practice. So I'd say, guess what suit, I want to get you ready for the experiment. Guess what suit this is? A heart. Oh, you got that one right. What's, how about this next one a club oh that 's two you 're two for two that 's great well let 's keep going whereas if they didn 't get the first few right they 'd say okay now we 'll start <laughs> <So> <laughs> once, <laughs> once you do that uh you've kind yeah. of and yeah. if you didn 't write that yeah. down or you didn 't have a video camera <laughs> right. uh, you you couldn 't reproduce the finding that people have extrasensory perception you 'd find they didn 't um, anyway uh, I want to ask a question uh that 's not in the science paper um the summary of the results obviously what you did is incredibly i think it's incredibly important and really uh it's glorious even if you don't get any glory and i think you, you do get some glory so i'm very happy for you but
1: oh, i uh, have been but the 269 <laughs> others have not been their share of glory. so i am uh, benefiting from all of their work uh and actually getting this done
0: well they're listed they're listed <laughs> they're listed. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, that's good. If you dig down deep, you can find their name somewhere. Okay. Uh, but they really are. They did this because they believed uh, in the importance of the question uh, and volunteered their time. They provided a service. Yeah. Uh, and God bless all I, of
0: them. Yeah. Um, but the, um, the question I want to ask you is this. So you found out something very general uh, that's interesting about the reliability of psychology findings, quote, on average. Um, if you did it again with the different hundred articles— It'd be interesting. You might get 36% reliability or 48 or 18 Obviously, if you did not, if you had an infinite budget and you could replicate, try to replicate some of the larger studies, you'd get a different result. But you also may have learned, I assume you learned something else that I didn't see in the science article, which is there's certain stylized facts, and I'll choose behavioral economics because uh, it's the interface between our two disciplines. So, There's certain stylized facts that have emerged from lots and lots of experiments that people assume to be reliable. Uh, Just to take one example, that people feel differently about losses versus gains. So that uh, reaction to that is asymmetric. Uh, So there's a bunch of those findings, and I listed one earlier in psychology that when you hear the words old or senior or AARP, you start to move more slowly. So those are less Confirmed, obviously, because they might be based on one study, one paper. Is there any pattern in the unreproduced studies that shouts out at you uh, from the 100 replication attempts? Did it turn out that, well, the 60% that failed roughly, you know, most of those were in such and such an area. I guess those are questionable. Did you learn anything qualitative that, that you can share?
1: Yeah, the, we did exploratory analysis of uh, different characteristics of findings because it would be highly beneficial to be able to predict challenges for reproducibility. Uh, and that doesn't explain, but you can at least predict when they occur. So one that has generated the most discussion, at least within the field, is the fact that uh, we were successfully reproduced findings in cognitive psychology right looking at the basic operations of the mind perception memory attention uh, we, pr- we reproduce those effects at twice the rate as we reproduced uh, social psychology effects my discipline by right, understanding ourselves interactions with others uh, stereotyping beliefs about people uh, so why but the, uh, the obvious question is why uh, why is it that we observe twice the rate in cognitive and social is it that social is doing worse practices. And so they're not, uh, 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 they're just not as... That's obvious,
0: Brian. Those are the <laughs> less honest people. It's, <laughs> sorry, it's your field. You got to face it. So there we go. So you <laughs> solved the problem.
1: Yeah. Uh, the So th- it is possible that there's something about the research practices. It's possible there's something about the people. Uh, it's possible there's something about the kinds of things that are being studied.
0: Yeah, it's probably so that.
1: One obvious thing at the at the latter end is that uh Social psychology is investigating things about the social experience, about the context in which behavior occurs, and doing replications necessarily changes the context. So it's quite possible uh, that the replications have much weaker evidence than the originals because they didn't, weren't sufficiently attentive or weren't able to address those shifts in context, uh, and so it really is varying across uh, dependence. So that's a possible explanation. A lot of people, uh, that especially those that, that are uh, involved in social psychology research, will gravitate to that kind of uh, possibility. Of course, we don't, we don't know if that's the explanation because other possibilities are also plausible. Another difference uh, between social and cognitive psychology is that most or many cognitive psychology research applications use what are called within subject designs. Right. I am my own control because I'm in multiple conditions, multiple treatments of the experiment. Right? You flash me words on the left side of the screen, and then you flash me words on the right side of the screen, and you compare my responses between the two. That is a highly powered design because it reduces a lot of error. You don't have to compare me in one treatment condition to you in a different treatment condition. For sure. But social psychology tends to use more between-subjects design. You can't, in the same experiment, easily increase my self-esteem and lower my self-esteem and have me feel like that makes any sense at all. Uh, And so we need to use more between-subjects designs, and those tend to be lower-powered. And so we may be seeing a consequence of some of the methodological differences uh, between fields to produce that kind of So there's a, a...
0: There's a group at Berkeley. It's the Berkeley Initiative for Transparency in the Social Sciences. And I was happy to see they recently launched the Lemur-Rosenthal Prize, prizes plural, for open social science awards that honor research that's particularly transparent and open about reproducibility. Um, being an economist and a fan of Ed Lemur, I don't know Rosenthal, but I was happy to see this. And And, and Lemur's essay on the launching of the prize is phenomenal. I, I recommend it to people. I'll put a link up to it. I noticed that you're on the executive committee of the Berkeley Initiative. Uh, what's going on? Why is this issue getting so much attention these days? Uh, you know, five or ten years ago, when you and I would grouse about this, complain, and be, angst, be worried about it, you know, people would say, yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. And nobody would, would – just keep publishing. All of a sudden, social science – and I think science is next – um, social science is very self-aware. Social scientists are very self-aware of this issue. Why do you think it's now?
1: Yeah, it is a curious uh, phenomenon because methodologists have been talking about this for forty, fifty years, uh, writing papers uh, now and again, and you know the, the same issues have been coming up over and over again. Uh, Bob Rosenthal, the other. Uh, uh, the other part of the prize uh, it is coined the term file drawer effect. Uh, and it was talking about how lots of the research disappears uh, into the file drawer, and that's creating a bias, this publication bias. and talked about all these issues in the 1970s. Uh, so why is it now? Well, it, there's easy ways to identify reasons within particular fields. But the weird thing is that it's happening across all fields uh, and it is, has extended to the life sciences and physical sciences uh, dramatically so. Uh, and so I think what has changed, and I, I can't really say this is the cause, uh, but what is different this time and how it has become such a discussion is that issues of reproducibility have come up in many different places sort of all at the same time. And that has produced a collective discussion that everyone is involved in. It's not just methodologists. It's not just practicing researchers. It's also funders. It's also the federal governments uh, are paying attention to this issue. And, uh, and it's also technology groups and organizations that are trying to do things to address it. And so it is, it is as if there was some tipping point that just turned this into we got to deal with it this. Uh, no, no more ignoring it. All of this is sort of collectively moving us to action. Uh, and you know, we, we talk about particular events in different fields, uh, but I think a large part what is common across those fields is that it's become a lot easier to examine the current published literature. The internet has provided some value for scientists, uh, and that is doing large-scale search and discovery of the credibility of evidence in the published literature itself. And so a lot of the interesting studies that were done over the last five or ten years really look at uh, publication practices, publication, published evidence, and can make more general uh, conclusions because of that about the potential challenges.
0: Uh, how big a problem is reproducibility in the physical sciences? Uh, I used to think this was my problem, meaning in yeah. economics. And I thought, hey, whoa, psychology's got some issues. And sure enough, of course, they do. Uh, I was telling, talking to an astronomer friend of mine, and he was uh, bemoaning how dishonest and uh, not dishonest, but biased uh, the results in his field are. And you think, well, astronomy isn't it just black and white there? And the answer is, of course, it's not. Right. Uh, there's the way that that the data is filtered through. It's not just like uh, it's not counting. You're not yeah. just saying how many how many. Uh, How many uh, apples are there in this bushel? It's really, inevitably, there are too many decisions to be made about what gets included in the data, how the data are measured, and what gets into the data set, and then how it's manipulated in every field. So do you see this as going to be, as being a wake-up call for science generally?
1: Yeah, it is pervasive across the sciences, and I think for two uh, particular reasons. One is that the incentive challenges are the same across the scientists' Practicing scientists are competing very hard to get a very limited number of jobs and then advance uh, through the career ladder in those jobs. doesn't matter if you're a physicist, a chemist, uh, economist, a psychologist or anybody else. Uh, Those pressures are there uh, and they all have a shared uh, publication practice pipeline. Uh, There's some variations across disciplines and how that operates in the particulars. Uh, but there is the, the same kind of limited sieve that people have to get through. Uh, the second factor is that everybody is working on problems that they don't really understand the answers to yet. That's why they're working <laughs> on them. Right? So it isn't that physicists keep going back to their office and saying, well, OK, I'm going to drop this feather and this bowling ball one more time <laughs> uh, and see which one lands first. And uh, do we use a vacuum or do we not? Oh, my gosh, we, we discovered you know, friction, whatever it is. Uh, they're not doing that. They're in on problems where there is a lot of choice. There is a lot of uncertainty. There is a lot of things that are not understood about the phenomenon. And so all of that subjectivity, flexibility, uh, decisions about what to report and not to report, that happens everywhere. Uh, there's only that very limited set that we can point to where there is a strong confirmation test that's happening, where there's a very strong model and very strong expectations of what ought to occur or ought not to occur that can test against that model, right? High-energy particle physics spent billions of dollars uh, on building tools uh, in order to test some very important principles of how, uh, what particles exist or not. Uh, and the Higgs boson experiments were critical experiments. They built replication into it. They had very, very high standards of evidence, uh, and it was testing against a very strong prediction, right? It was model science, uh, and it costs billions and billions of dollars. Uh, that's not how all physics works. Uh, so these challenges aren't happening just in uh, the domains that we are exist in, which don't yet have strong models, uh, but in, in, even in places where uh, models are maturing to So uh,
0: what's next? What's going to be the next um, big project at the um, Center for Open Science?
1: So relating to uh, the reproducibility project uh, and our uh, discussion we just had uh, is that uh, we need to have more information about reproducibility across domains uh, and even deeper within domains. Uh, uh, So this project, even though it was a very big project, was just one study. Uh, It isn't definitive. Uh, and there are many things that might be changed, be improved, be uh, deepened in trying to understand reproducibility. So we have an active project uh, that's modeled on the, the reproducibility project in psychology in cancer biology. Uh, so we're doing 50 replications of prominent results uh, in that field. Uh, and that's ongoing now. Uh, and then we've been talking to groups in other disciplines about for doing similar kinds of projects uh, in their disciplines. And we're not uh, experts in all of these different disciplines. We have more of the how do you run a project like this, how administrative expertise, and then the just general expertise of reproducibility, regardless of the content domain. Uh, So we're trying to help uh, these different groups sort of get these kinds of projects going. Uh, There is a team doing one in behavioral economics. Uh, We're not directly involved in that one, but I'm excited to see what they find.
0: Yeah, the related area in economics is the um, that needs to <clears throat> be looked at is some of the experimental results in development. Yeah. Um, the deworming uh, work is um, under some serious issues of reproducibility, and also the decline effect is there. We we see the original study on deworming had these wonderful effects. Now it doesn't appear that they they may not be as large or they may not exist at all, so um, it seems to be... Uh, very, very important. Uh, Before we close, I forgot to ask you, I wanted to hear you talk about the reaction of the authors whose studies have been declared unconfirmed or unreproduced. Uh, I suppose uh, it's possible that some of them had more than one study in 2008 in in one of those, in those three journals. Did, did anybody have multiple failures or successes? And in general, have they uh, screamed?
1: Uh, I, on the first question, I think there was only one or two people that had w- more than one study in the in the sample, uh, and I actually I don't know what the outcomes were um, in for multiple ones for a single person. Uh, but in terms of the reactions of the original authors, uh, they've by and large been very positive, and that doesn't mean that they haven't been skeptical. Uh, but by and large, they've been positive uh, in. Uh, engaging with the project. You know, it isn't just that people doing the reproducibility project that care about reproducibility. Most researchers care about it. Uh, And so there was a lot of uh, good collegial interaction uh, between original authors and the replication teams in doing good faith tests. And of course, they have lots of reasons to be skeptical and concerned because they do have skin in the game uh, in this. uh, Because in the current... Culture of science, people are uh, do, do feel some degree of ownership and investment uh, in the results uh, that have come out of their research, and so the fact that they were, uh, uh, by and large, positively engaged was just a, a very encouraging to me about the state uh, of science and the potential for uh, addressing these challenges.
0: I guess they'd be less collegial if the journals withdrew the articles exposed. <laughs> uh, you know, special yeah. issue. We have to. Uh, we have to now uh, uh, the following. Uh, articles are not uh, are no longer going to be in the online archive because they've been found to be unreproducible. Right, and
1: uh, so, yeah, that would not have been and, and of course, that would have been way beyond the replication is just one attempt, uh, and it could have messed up. Uh, we don't know. Uh, so, and and I should note that it hasn't been that's uniformly been positive. There <laughs> lot. Uh, yeah, there were challenging interactions in a number of cases. There were uh, people who said, well, I don't think this was done uh, to the standards that I, I would have wanted it to be done uh, the, in terms of the replication of their uh, study. Uh, and we're, we're trying to surface all of that uh, and make, give uh, original authors an opportunity to talk about what their uh, experience and expectations and uh, their, what how they revise or not their beliefs about uh, the research that they had done uh, based on the replications because that really sh- should be just part of the conversation. Replication is essential and original authors have a perspective and often the most expertise in the particular thing that they were studying. And so you have to have that be part of the conversation of when a replication occurs and, ha- and turn that conversation into one of puzzling over how can we get it right. It isn't a contest to see who is right. It's how can we work collectively to get it right in order to have a strong, credible base of knowledge that we can all uh, be confident in and use to solve the social problems of the world.
0: My guest today has been Brian Nozick. I appreciate Brian's fighting through a cold and some of the vicissitudes of Skype on this uh, conversation. He is a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia, co-founder and executive director of the Center for Open Science. Brian, thanks for being part of EconTalk.
1: Thanks for having me again, Russ.